0: <laughs> Neil McEnroy, welcome to Scotonomics. Thanks for joining us today. So Neil is a senior fellow for the Global Advancement of Community Wealth Building at the Democracy Collaborative. He's also seconded to the Scottish Government from CLESS, which um, is Centre for Local Economic Strategies. Um, now, I noted that you are... Um, inspired by the idea of the Greek work, word for economy, economas, and really keeper of the house is how that translates. Um, and you, you take inspiration. Can you tell me why you're inspired by thinking about economy in that way?
1: Yeah, no, exa- no, completely. I mean, economos, you yeah, just say Greek word, keeper of the household. And what it talks is about the essence of what economy should be about. It should be about our home. Uh, it should be part of what we are as human social beings um but of course it's become detached from all that it's the economy is something out there something we have to fit into but it's not the economy is a social science it's something we can construct and we can construct it any way we want and in fact we've become detached from the economy so the idea that we need to bring the economy back home to our lives to our communities to our hearts is exactly what we need to do because as sure as as sure as we all know, the economy is running away here. It's eating the planet and it doesn't serve us. We need to get that economy back home to serve us and work the way we want it to work.
0: Do you think that's a result of instigation of neoclassical economic thinking uh, in the 1800s? It's
1: part of the maturing of capitalism really, in a sense it's become detached from our lives. Uh, and you know, it, it's part of just the evolution of capitalism and the evolution of part of the discipline, I mean, the discipline itself has not helped itself. It's served capitalism. And of course, the discipline needs to actually get back to its roots like the economists and start serving us and serving the people. So there's many reasons why it's become detached. But, but the, the big reason is the, the, the maturing of capitalism and how it, in a sense, serves the interest of capital and those with capital that the interests of people and communities, and of course, most importantly, the planet itself.
0: So would you like to see um, what you describe as a new municipalism? Is well, that...
1: there's many dimensions of what we need to hone in on here. And, you know, the the key thing for me is how do we bring that economy back home? And community wealth building is a key to that. It says, hold on here, let's stop the economy where wealth what was it 10, 10 of the richest men in the world own um half own the same as half the population of the world a huge concentration of wealth wealth is the defining feature of all the economy who has it where does it go and how do more people get their hands on it community wealth bonds says let's repatriate some of that wealth let's start making sure that wealth truly works for our people our communities and then that there's a whole range of aligned sister movements if you like which includes the well-being economy includes things like new municipalism which in a sense is saying let's uh, build our civic uh, uh, let's build our cities and our places in ways that truly work for us and where the grassroots communities have more of a say in the actual activity that takes place in that locality so there's a whole range of aligned progressive movements and the moment we are in history, the moment we are with the crisis we're in, all those aligned progressive movements need to get their, ask, their act together and start working more effectively together. That is the moment we're in. And things like new movements is a key part of that. But we're struggling, because the progressive movements are not aligning themselves effectively enough. Uh, and in a sense, there's some some who don't want us to align, uh, the force of capital, maybe don't want us to align because they want to keep the way that it is, and keep the plutocrats and the wealthy, uh, retain the situation as it is.
0: So you have seen some of this um, at work in Barcelona, where William lives. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more what's happening um, with this in Barcelona?
1: Barcelona have a, a new municipalism agenda, which in a sense, it's building the city for its people, and that includes the economy, the social, the cultural life of that city. It's it's trying to create a stand against, if you like, the forces of global capital and how it flows around and invests and disinvests. Now, like any world city, it struggles in that because the forces are so strong. But it is a poplar tree, if you like, it is a windbreak against some of that ravages of investment and disinvestment that can be so dis- damaging for communities. So. It's trying to bring the power back to people. I mean, Ada Kalau says that politics is an agora, not a temple. Politics is a space that we all need to be part of, not something that we kind of go to the town hall and it's a temple we all you know, look up to as a, as a high. And also, the economy itself should be an agora. The economy itself is a place that we all need to contribute and have a democratic say in, and not something that we, a temple, a cathedral, That we go to that we fit within it's something we can construct and we need to make and barcelona is on that journey but of course there's many other places around the world that are on a similar community wealth
2: building journey as well if you like there's a sense of the appreciation of beauty here and beauty in the city and a real respect for what the city looks like in terms of the buildings and, you know, not just buildings and architecture, but the, but the use of green spaces. Um, and, and an example is what they're doing with the Sagrada Familia, which has been, you know, being built for 150 years. But there's a real consensus across all of the political parties that Barcelona has to be a city that's, that's, that, that looks, looks great. And is designed for people. And the Sagrada Família is, uh, there's a viewing platform that's been built and it's not, you're not going to be able to see Sagrada Família from it for like another five or six years, but it's been planned 10, 15 years ago. And you have to have that kind of consensus that goes across the political parties, I think to really transform a city and Neil do you Do you firstly, do you agree with that? And secondly, are are you seeing any kind of consistency across the political parties and across the the progressive left of how they want our cities and our communities to look? That's a really good question. I think I think we need to separate. I I agree with you.
1: You know, we need to um, create a society and economy that allows beauty, love, peace, harmony. Uh, respect uh, to shine through and, and arguably that is not universally done um, but beauty in itself and design is not enough because that you get many beautiful places design built environments that are designed but own who owns them it's a question of ownership is much more fundamental and how how people ownership is the way that you have a clear say a direct stake in that place and that 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 thing so it's not just enough to think about design we need to think about ownership and that is where barcelona and others are striving they're striving to actually first allow a demos a, a, a polity that arounds people to have more of a say but also through cooperatives and through other forms of ownership models to actually ensure that more people actually have a direct stake in that and i think across all cities in the world there is progressives i mean at the moment I work in Chicago, uh, in Chicago there is a, um, well part of, part of my work in Chicago, is that there's progressives there looking at in South West Chicago, looking at community land trusts, looking at different forms of cooperative retail, different forms of ownership models, and so there's progressives everywhere. The problem we have at the moment is the amplification, the scaling up of them. It's not just enough to have progressive left leaders, we need to actually create a much deeper um, network of activism beneath that and that's kind of what barcelona is trying to do and other cities are trying to do but it's hard because the forces of ownership and the force of capital uh, don't like those they don't want community land trusts they don't want democratic ownership of more activity because then because wealth then is distributed better and they don't want that they want wealth to be concentrated so there's a fight on it. it has to be a fight uh, and I think we're winning, but not winning fast enough for the planet or for the growing levels of poverty and inequality we have across our cities and the world generally.
2: But in, in Barcelona, there is that consensus that we need to plan for the future, and there's very little disagreement around some of the town planning, and, and that doesn't seem to happen in the UK, and, and it almost seems like, to me living here now, that everything is up for discussion, debate, and argument when we're talking about our cities and our communities, and that doesn't seem the the, the key the case here, am am I wrong, or is there a consensus that, that that you see in in Scotland and some of the other cities?
1: I would say different cities are different cities are different cultures, and some cities have a much more stronger culture of debate and basic democracy in terms of discussion. and Barcelona is a beacon of that. It is a very um discursive and everything's up for grabs planning is a spectator sport really in barcelona it's a spectator sport in portland and oregon these are the the debate is there it's 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 but let's be under no illusion just because the debate's there where does the power lie the real power where does the real ownership model lie a lot of barcelona is still a beacon to extractive fossil capitalism it's still it's still playing part of that game, and part of that demos. It doesn't actually affect some of the fundamental decisions about where investment lands and who gains from that wealth. So we we do have the but you know many many cities I think are equally as progressive as Barcelona, but they're maybe less trendy if you like in that sense. Portland I think is one of those cities in. Oregon. I think our own cities in the UK, there's progressive activity, which are sometimes I think we're too humble about, that's around. There's great debates that go on in our cities about what the future would be. It just, it's just a different cultural vibe, perhaps a less antagonistic, less disruptive, less universal, but it's still there. And we need to build those up, build that up. I feel.
0: Well, key players in community wealth building are what you term anchor institutions. Can you describe these more to, to our audience and what they actually are?
1: Community wealth building, as I said before, is really interesting in wealth. Who is it? Where does it go? And how do we make sure more people get their hands on it? It's a fundamental feature of place and our economy. So if you think about wealth, which, which organisations or, in, or individuals can we actually have more of a say on in terms of the wealth they have? And straight away you move to those large public institutions in place, the hospitals, the universities, the local authorities, the police services. They own a lot. Of, they own a lot of land. They employ a lot of people, and they buy a lot of things. The Scottish economy, for instance, probably 35% of the whole Scottish economy is driven through those anchor institutions. Even in places like Barcelona, it's probably 30-40% of the whole economy is driven by that public money. So that is something that we can actually have some say over in terms of where that wealth goes. So if a hospital, if a university, for instance, is buying new IT equipment, is it buying it from some sweatshop in China? Or is it buying it from some ethical, sustainable, green, living wage, fair tax company based in Dundee or based in whatever, these decisions of their purchasing matter a lot about how the economy works and who it works for. So Community Wealth Baldwin says, when these anchor organisations are buying things, can they buy things in a way that considers the wider relationship of that purchase to the economy and who benefits from it? And that can create quite significant dividends and significant benefit. Also, who do they employ? Are they employing people from maybe the deprived areas of the city or are they just employing whoever? What about the land and property assets? Are they selling them off to developers or are they creating urban parks or community spaces? So, the question of their wealth and what those anchors do with their wealth is a very important element to considering um, how an economy works and who it works for and how we bring the economy back home our people in our communities
2: i can see that and i'm aware of an organization called electronics watch and it's a membership organization and the the catalan here um, are members of it and there's a lot of uh, not-for-profit organizations who are part of that and they're saying exactly that we need to be buying our it equipment and it has to go through a proper and um, procurement process so it's really interesting though no, there are definitely organizations who do that and, and who are on that path already i mean
1: Barcelona and many other cities have a very, a very sophisticated um, social procurement uh, framework. Which public bodies are asked to comply with. Uh, in the UK, or in Scotland, but in England we have the Social Value Act. In Scotland we have community benefits and sustainable procurement legislation, where we've got quite sophisticated legislative and procedural uh, architecture to support this social purchasing, uh, and. and In some way, the legislation is good. What really matters is the supply. We need to work more with supply to get those uh, cooperatives and different forms of social organisations to be fit to bid, compete and win on those contracts. I mean, this is a kind of key part, anchor institutions of community wealth building and there's many examples across the world of, of successes around this.
0: So in the UK, I would say there's an overt concentration of anchor institutions in London. Which you would think would bring a lot of wealth, very specifically around the area of London, which it does to a great extent. But there are quite a lot of areas that are are missed in London as well that suffer deep poverty. Why? Why is this? What is? How are these anchor institutions spending uh, in the UK's capital?
1: I would say that firstly, I agree with you. You know, there's a lot of London bashing, and i I think that's. You know, there's a lot of big city bashing. Um, London has its every city has poverty and disadvantage and London has it equally to many other cities, uh, 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 some desperate poverty in London, uh, which is unacceptable, of course. Uh, um, there is huge wealth in London, of course, huge concentrations of wealth. Um, and that that is supported by a whole architecture of legislation, policy decisions, uh, arcane and archaic traditions. Establishment and so forth. Um, the The role of anchor organisations is only one part of the economy, and arguably London could do a lot more with its anchor organisations to ensure that not only are Londoners benefiting, but the wider the wider UK economy is ben U, the wider UK economy is benefiting from the actions of those anchor organisations in terms of what they do with the land and property, who they employ, and what they purchase. Um, uh, I, I, I think it's 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 it. If if those anger organisations have some form of democratic money, if they're spending taxpayers' money, uh, if they have some form of democratic oversight, it's imperative and essential that they are beacons of virtue and well-being in their economic activities, and they're not. By and large. So they need to become much more. Every single pound they spend is our money, and it needs to make sure that it truly benefits the economy, the planet, the people, the communities that are around them. And there's a lot of that London organisation to do, but also lots of organisations in Scotland need to do better in this as it's, well.
2: It's quite interesting, Neil, because you mentioned Beacon, and I remember the Beacon councils in the late '90s and the early 2000s. And, and I actually worked in the local government department in London, and it was all about best value. And I think that was a a, a, a very a, a neoliberal conservative, and then tied into the Labour uh, government policy, which was you have to get the kind of bang for your buck. And I think that fundamentally destabilised a lot of these anchor organisations who were told to go to with the service that was the, the the cheapest and that in some way we would get best value for that. Has that changed, or do you still think there is that understanding that it's all about paying the least amount for the services that our anchor organisations and other public sector organisations are 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 using?
1: That's a really good point. Uh, I mean, community wealth bond is a direct attack on that idea of value it, on cost alone. In fact, it's got so bad, William, that whole idea of cost is what is assumed is the cheapest is, is not the cheapest because it's a monopoly. That's where you get those big contractors who are the only people who can service the because con- they have a wraparound service. And it's, you know, they're the, there's only there's so few entrants into the marketplace there's no competition it's a, a virtual monopoly so it's not even the it's not even the most cost effective There's the only people that can do it because they've bought over everything else so community wealth is a dick attack on that it's an attack on the it's it, it, it's attack on the notion that it's just about price it's about the wider value and the vital value you get from more entrance to the market through competition but also the wider value in terms of well-being in terms of looking after the planet in terms of local economy in terms of support and ingenuity and creativity and the craft of individual communities and enterprises to do good things it has that broader relational aspect to what a a purchase brings and that that's just the, it's a reimagination but also practical action that starts to do that but you're spot on to mention that. Best value was a curse and it's still there. And it's used, I think, by those that say, oh, they're a bit, they cost more. We can't go there. It's going to cost us too much money. But you know that they're paying, probably paying rubbish wages. They probably got stitched up in terms of supply and the, the supply. They're probably not doing good by the community. They're probably not doing good by the environment. And so it's a false economy, if you like in terms of what they're actually uh, 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 saying, or uh, a big uh, sort of back office company, uh, logistics company went on that basis. It was just from contract to contract. But but it's worse, of course, it's driven by shareholder dividend. And so it's all about the short term, year on year dividends. And look at the care market, for instance, the social care market, where you've got huge players who are receiving perhaps perhaps double figures, shareholder dividends. Meanwhile, the service is really poor. The workers are paid ridiculously low wages. It's an investment. This is how far our economy has become detached from our lives, back away from our home and our hearts. It's not seen as looking after dignity and decency of our our elderly relatives uh, or uh, in society. It's not about decency and dignity. It's about what is the dividend? That's no way to run. An economy and run a core service a foundational service like care so that's why community wealth Bone argues it's some for some bits of the economy there should be no profit motive whatsoever they should be taken out of private ownership uh, like care like some like the utilities like transport there's no space for the market there they need to be run effectively and efficiency for the people in the communities and 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 frankly, profit and shareholder dividend should have no place within that
2: and, and you'd find Adam Smith backing you up backing you up on that as well. you know that's how it's it's incredible that we have got to a position where where we we see everything is up for the market. And you know this really is only something that's happened the last thirty years. But I said you know that the, the the fundamentally you know the the economists who established capitalism, didn't think that the market should come into every single area and you know those are examples where you know, the, the, the market shouldn't be an, an involved and certainly shouldn't be leading the services. and, and very few um, economists would would argue that but but here we are in a situation especially in the United Kingdom where everything is up for, for sale. And that's an important point we always try and make on Scotonomics is that you know it'd be really interesting to hear your opinion of this, but you can look across the globe to try and find other countries who have given over so much to the market and who have privatised so much, and you won't see anyone who's done it to the extent that the United Kingdom has. Is that a fair reflection of, of, of where the United Kingdom is compared to some of the other countries that you visit and you work with?
1: There's, there's no doubt about it that the United Kingdom, broadly, the United Kingdom has allowed the penetration of capital and shareholder dividend quite deeply into many of uh, much of its economic activity, including its public services, I was, in, I was speaking to the mayor of Green Bay, which is a city in Wisconsin. And this is the land of the free, USA. And they own an amusement park, a municipally owned amusement park, like Strathclyde, uh, what's it called? Strathclyde County Park, you know, the amusement. The, the city owns it. The city owns Green Bay Packers. They, um, it's community owned, or community and city owned, I think. The football team, you know... Th- th- the, the reason why is because they knew it was the most efi- efficient way of doing it, the most beneficial way of doing it in terms of like, um, it's, a, it's owned by the people. They knew there was, if it was going to be make, make a return that would come back to the people and to the civic and to the public, uh, uh, the, the local authority, the, 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 the administration. It's just the sensiblest, decent, most organised um, way of doing things. Uh, we have went into the cathedral of shareholder dividend and capitalism, and said we're going to we're going to set the altar of this and do it this way, which which has no basis in terms of decency, dignity, dignity, or what actually is the most effective way of doing it. So <coughs> I agree. I think whether the UK is the most I don't know, but it's certainly up there in terms of the extent to which shareholder supremacy has. Uh, rides over citizen or community supremacy or individual supremacy, it's shareholder supremacy. It has the upper hand in these things.
0: Neil, it's interesting for me that you use water and hydrology analogies for wealth. Can you elaborate and give examples of this vision? I've got um, some examples that you wrote down, um, faucets and the taps of wealth, and maybe you could go through these and talk to our audience about what you mean uh, and your concerns about these these particular things. So first, there's finance. Second, workforce. Third, spending. Four, land and property. And five, ownership. So could you maybe go through these five points and talk about how these things affect our economy and what's your vision for improving our economy via these five different examples?
1: I'm a big fan of metaphors. Uh, um, I don't know why but, but for me they kind of make things clear and so many economists have used the metaphor of water hydrological systems as flows of wealth uh, and we've had the you know, metaphor trickle down torrent down trickle up and this whole note so if you think about wealth as flows like a hydro- hydrological system then you're thinking well okay w- where does that where does that whereas when I buy something where's where's that money flowing to and is it flowing to a loch here in my place or is it flowing away out to the sea and somewhere else and where are the how do I create dams or eddies that allow that money to flow to the people that need it the most or the people that are suffering how do we make that flow in a way that nourishes the planet rather than damages and floods things so It kind of works sort of for me. And in that, in community wealth problem, we think about different plumbing and different flows, and there's five different flows. And one is financial wealth. One is, the second one is workforce, as you said. Um, So it's like wages, if you like, that kind of wealth. There's land and property, a huge source of wealth and flow of money. Um, Then it's procurement that we've touched upon before. It's that spending of your large public bodies. And then ownership. And ownership is the key one, because that's your reservoir and loch. Yeah, that's where that's where things land and stick and, and be can corral the question of ownership. So in community wealth the tactics, the actions that are to think, how do we make sure across all those five elements that we're making sure there's a flow of wealth that definitely benefits communities? So opposed to relying on the big banks in terms of finance, you're thinking, can we think about community banks, the Sparkassen banks we've got in in Germany? Can we think about things like the Scottish National Investment Bank? Can we think about credit unions? Can we think about um, how we use our pension funds so that they actually benefit communities more rather than Dubai, nuclear warheads, FAGS, whatever it may be? So we're thinking about the flow of that financial architecture that truly benefits local people, communities. With workforce, you're thinking, well, hold on, can we make sure that when we pay wages, that it's a, f- a living wage, it's a, f- it's a it's a real living wage, that people are treated with dignity, there's decency, there's unionisation. And that, in a sense, is Scotland's fair work agenda. Um, when you think about land and property, you're thinking, well, how are you making sure that that land, which nobody really owns, essence it's the commons in a way isn't it it's like it's 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 the planet that owns the land yeah we're just sort of temporary stewards of it in a way how are we making sure that that land truly benefits us and the people and goodness knows we've had a lot big history of how our land's been taken off us in the past in our fine country so land reform And making sure that more communities can actually own that land and then put economic activity on it that benefits communities is another key element. Um, And then you've got the question of uh, ownership, and that is about supporting plural, inclusive forms of ownership: cooperatives, municipal ownership, mutuals, community businesses, social enterprises. A whole. The great countries of the world, the great places of the world, including places like Barcelona, have a high proportion of those types of inclusive ownership models, because their shareholders are the workers, their shareholders are the community. They're not somebody living in the Cayman Islands. They're your neighbor or your close neighbor. And that creates a natural flow, uh, retention of wealth within localities and within communities. And so all those things, are part of strategies and the work that we do at the Moxa Collaborative as well as the work in Scotland is about advancing community wealth building and through those five bits of plumbing if you like, the finance, the workforce, the procurement, the land and property and ownership and of course there's places in Scotland that are on this journey now and pretty well advanced like including North Ayrshire.
0: I think that you know of course the most famous uh, cooperative is, is in Spain it's Mondragon and, and I think that the Scottish Government, from what I read, are quite proactive towards encouraging cooperatives. Would you say that's the case?
1: Yeah, I would say they are. I mean, they have the Cooperative Development Scotland as part of Scottish Enterprise. And there is a uh, funding and support architecture for co-ops. For me, you can always do more. And I think, you know, Scotland should do more on co-ops. But it is pretty decent in international terms of what it does. Um, I think we don't want to get too much into the debate about different types of co-ops but i mean co-ops just one ownership model and mondragon is one particular model and it's a, a great one but it's got a particular tradition and it came out of a particular culture post franco particular different time uh, i'm 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 more keen on smaller co-ops but that's a personal penchant. i like i like co-ops that are more related to place the big corporate type cooperatives i think can start to become can unwieldy? Unwieldy, yeah, and less sensitive. Um, uh, and, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I, I think it it, it lends, there's a question of scale about co-ops. And I would say if they get too big, they lose some of their virtue. Uh, too small, then they also lose some of their virtue as well. I think there's a kind of horse of a courses thing here, but certainly erring towards the smaller and the big corporate type co-ops is the way to go. Um, but Scotland is on this journey and Scotland is, um, you know, a beacon, I think, and should be increasingly a beacon for this drive for inclusive ownership, including co-ops across the world. Um, um, it's got everything. We always think, in, I do believe and working in many different places, there is a there is a cooperative spirit in Scotland. There is the Jock Thompson's bairns thing, isn't there? We're all in this together. And I think there is, a, in our traditions, that natural collaborative ethos, uh, I think we could do a lot more with it, and co-ops is a way, perhaps, for that to happen.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, Leslie Riddick touches on this in her her book, and and she, to a certain extent, uh, explains perhaps our architecture, uh, so many of us living in tenements and sharing front and back doors with each other, and how that perhaps contributes towards that feeling. But uh, now that you're working with the Scottish Government, uh, I wanted to know a little bit more about what you're seeing changing in Scotland and also um, what's happening in North Ayrshire.
1: There's the wellbeing economy agenda in Scotland, which community wealth building is a practical means of delivering on that. And that that is growing in significance. Uh, and we've got, you know, the the National Strategy of Economic Transformation, which obviously will wellbeing economy will figure highly in that. So so there is a receptive soil conditions, a receptive context here for progressive economics in Scotland. Um we need to prove make the case more I mean I'm a big fan of showing and telling and getting things done and that you know we can talk and talk and talk but if you can say look how that's changed somebody's life by doing it different that's the best thing you can do you know I'm not a I'm not one of these think tank academic I can do all that but I'm I'm, I'm much more with the practical element to it so what's happening in Scotland is there's six areas that are practically looking to deliver on community wealth, building, and North Ayrshire has been going longer than more of them, it's been going two years now, and they've, been adop- they've adopted an action plan, which includes those five pillars, those pipes of wealth, and they're creating actions across the piece on all of them, uh, actions on their pension fund, action on fair work, action on progressive procurement, action on land and property, including community energy, activity taking place there, and then ownership, supporting cooperative development and so forth, including an employee ownership of a hotel on Aran, as well as other employee ownership stuff. So there, I say, turn the dial, they're turning the dial every day around this Community Wealth building Agenda. It's corporately centred in the Council. Um, so it's not a fluffy little thing away over there. It's right at the heart of the Council. They're a Community Wealth building Council. And also they've now linked in with a range of different anchor organizations in Ayrshire not just North Ayrshire but the wider Ayrshire they've got a buy-in from South and East Ayrshire now uh, they've got a, 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 um, a commission so a, a commission for community wealth building I should also say they've got an anchor charter which is a commitment of all the anchors in North Ayrshire to advance the kind of things we're talking about so They've been going two years, they've already got their action. Their report came out last, I think it was just just maybe October, their annual report, which showed a lot of progress being made. But we've also got other areas now. We've got about a third of all areas in Scotland, uh, council areas in Scotland, doing elements of community wealth, notably Clackmaninshire, uh, Fife, Western Isles, South Lanarkshire, but there's about five or six others. Glasgow just, uh, the Cabinet just signed off a, a, I think it was a Community Wealth Building Charter or or Commitment. Uh, Dundee I think has done something similar recently. So the movement's growing, we have to go faster. Uh, we've got legislation coming up uh, later in the parliamentary term, a potential Community Wealth Building Act that will further create fertile soil conditions to speed up uh, community wealth building uh, and those five elements we discussed earlier.
2: That was about- if so much is going on, um, how can we hear more about it? How do we get more messaging? And and how do to to do, how does the community wealth building as a movement communicate what it's trying to do? Because it's up against kind of forty years of neoliberalism, and you know we're really talking about you know creating a new paradigm here. And How do we actually do that?
1: It's a good it's a good point um a really good point and an important thing uh firstly we need product so you know we kind of uh in america they say a, a cowboy we know we, a cowboy with no cattle you know we we need we need to have the substance here and that is what we're working on at the moment in terms of the pro proving the case uh, but we do need we do need to get a hell of a lot better of singing about it and uh i think there's a role for the economic development community through EDAS particularly, Economic Development Association of Scotland, who have got a program of dissemination and training and so forth. Um, I think there's a job for the wider um, media to see when they talk about the well-being economy, to actually think it's not just an ephemeral thing but something that is actually practical through Community Wealth building and start to, I think there's a job for ministers, there's a job for Scottish Government, there's a job for us all to start to say there is the art of the possible here. You know, it's how do we eat forty years of neoliberalism like an elephant, one bit at a time. You know, we need to chip away at, it, and that needs consistent messaging and consistent comms and consistent yeah, approaches that say we're on this journey. Um, I, I'm I'm of the belief I'm of the kind of I'm of the belief that progress happens through hard graft and work and then it reaches a tipping point um i'm not someone who really believes that you can have like a concept and then people will just go like oh that was that and move I, I i'm 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 more of a belief that you kind of need to chip away at things and build a kind of groundswell and then you get the huge paradigm shift tipping point um there's a there's a there's a, a brazilian philosopher and politician called roberto unger He works at the the Harvard Law School and Robert Unger talks about the moment we're in and he says that this is the moment of demonstrating the epiphanies of possibilities against the forces of neoliberalism the epiphanies of possibilities because it's so omnipresent that old neoliberalism that you need to start to have those beacons those little bits of light and those epiphanies of possibilities foreshadow, foreshadow, he says, the bigger change. And I think that's what we need to do more. Than show those epiphanies of how like what you said before about well, when you mentioned the, you know, the 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 electric, the, the company you mentioned in Barcelona, those are that's an epiphany of the possibilities, a different way of doing things, doing things. And it can work. We need more and more and more of them and that'll become almost rise up and that will create then the tipping point. Unfortunately, in Scotland, we've also got arguably you know, a content- political context, broadly, and a cultural, social context that is receptive to alternative. I'm not saying they're wholly bought in across the piece, but they're receptive to alternative. That's not the case in England. They're not receptive to the alternative. The epiphanies of possibilities are going to... Being put back in their box.
0: Okay, and that's really a shame to hear that. I and mean, I mean, I was going to say when you're talking about epiphanies, I mean, clearly for political and economics geeks, that epiphany is demonstrated by the Preston model, which you you must have yep. been involved with. um Can you tell us about some of the fantastic results that have come from the Preston model?
1: Yeah, I was involved in Preston model from day one. But obviously, there's many, many hands and hearts involved in that. Um, it's worth mentioning that it started from two, two things that came together by serendipity and chance. One was my own organisation, Claire Centre for Local Economic Strategies, who were looking, who had been exploring community wealth building and had been over to the States, and looked what happened in Cleveland, which was run by the Democracy Club, the organisation I now work for, and that was a big success. The Cleveland Community Wealth Building activity, and we thought, how could we do that in the UK? And we were looking for a location that that um, we could test case a sort of community wealth building pilot. Now we tried a large city in the UK, but it didn't work out for many reasons, and then. Preston were members of CLES. It's a smallish city, 130,000 people. It's got a university. It's got a college, two colleges. It's got a local authority. It's got all the anchors. And we thought, Preston would be good. At the same time, or even before then, um, the leader of Preston and the cabinet member for Preston were interested in ideas of the Mondragon model cooperative development. And we were match made, if you like, and met with the political leadership and we agreed to cook up a plan of doing a Community Wealth building anchor approach in Preston. So we assembled the anchor organisation, we did lots of research around spending patterns and where all the money went and we found that of the 800 million pound across six anchor organisations in Preston that five percent of the spend went to Preston companies and 39% of the spend went to Lancashire companies. 5%, we'd done other work, but 5% was really, really low. You know, Preston's a good-sized town, a city, uh, probably a little bit smaller than Dundee, and only 5% of all the spending of the two colleges, the local authorities, uh, the university, was landing in Preston itself. Um, so we end up changing practice of procurement animating supply in Preston. Come on, get your bids in. And by over three years, it went up to 18% in Preston, which was £30 million, brought back to Preston economy in three years. But in Lancashire, it was a £200 million shift from 39% to 80% to the wider Lancashire. That was worth about 1,400 jobs. Wow. Uh, um, Now, that's just the procurement pillar of the font. They've also now um, div- uh, the Lancashire Pension Fund, Pension Com- Lancashire Pension, um, yeah, Lancashire Pension Fund, has now invested in local hotels. Yeah, So they're divesting some of the money. They're divested from fossil fuels. Um, they they now have a, a fair wage. They're one of the real living wage places. So they have a whole range of organisations, not just public sector, who pay the real living wage. They now have an extensive cooperative development approach from run out of the University of Central Lancashire, UCLan, where they are looking to develop around 10 co-ops a year, I think it is. Uh, They've supported a number of social enterprise and community businesses. The council now owns um, the local market, which they've redeveloped. Uh, They're now owning the local cinema development. Uh, They've got a franchise in there, but they own the actual building. Um, so they're taking that new municipalist stand, melding it with community wealth building. Um, so they they have been they're on that they're on a journey and they've been ahead of some of others. But North Ayrshire is catching up quite quickly. I'm hoping that and Fife catch up quite quickly. Um, you've got London Borough of Newham, you've got Wigan, you've got a whole range of places where this community wealth building is growing. Um, and obviously the places that I'm working now in the states, uh, quite significant community wealth building activity there. Now as well, including the city of Chicago and some of all in Greater Boston.
2: Well, these these are fantastic examples. Uh, I'm seeing some similarities um, with the transition transition town movement. Yeah. And um, and one of the reasons that that um, that that tra- those transition towns didn't didn't work was because the agents of change tended to be white middle-aged middle class and that was a real weakness of that movement is there an awareness of that within the community wealth building that that is a danger and is there any way that you've identified to try and to make to make the the process much more inclusive and outside of that kind of who you would expect to be involved in these types of movements
1: that's a really good point William. um um yeah i've been familiar with the work of transition towns and i been down, down to um, Lewis and um, uh, I think yes. I've forgotten the name, begins with T, tech um, so I'm familiar with the work of Rob and all that and, and known them for a number of years and a big fan of it. Um, I wouldn't quite personify it the way you say, but I know I know kind of what you mean. There is that sort of more affluent uh, liberal sort of mindset. It's not a class-based uh, agenda and neither is it particularly an um, an economic system change it's more it's more coming from a different route if you like um and it's got its beauties but also its flaws um like all things community wealth is deeply aware of um the importance of diversity and representation and how it needs to actually involve the people who uh, the 99 percent, if you like uh, rather than the one percent um, um and we've got all. Each of the places I've mentioned, there is a grassroots activism to it. We need to do more, and always can do more on that. In the states, it's very different. In states, community wealth-owned agenda is driven by by racial and equity justice, equity and racial justice. So in Chicago, it's it's driven by um, an activist mayor, Lori Lightfoot, who comes from South, uh, a black female mayor who comes from South uh, West Chicago. And uh, and it's been driven out of the office for equity and racial justice, and very much focuses on grassroots uh, cooperative development, uh, decent workplace practices for Black and Brown folks in South and West Chicago. It's it's and and similar in uh, though more white working class agenda in Somerville in Boston. So there is there is a deep recognition that this this, this is about a recalibration economy away from the 1% to 99%, away from those who um, enjoy the fruits of the economy to those that don't enjoy the fruits of the economy, from those who uh, are the perpetrators of injustice to those who suffer from the injustice. It's very much about a recalibration, a redirection of an economy to all the people, but also all the ills that the economy creates, including, of course, the climate crisis. For community wealth builders, the climate crisis is synonymous with the economic justice and racial justice crisis. So we, 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 don't, we, we understand that it's a venn diagram. They're, they're together, they're linked together. And we're not of the ilk that see the climate justice question is detached from questions of class or race or diversity. They're synonymous, they're linked. Um, because climate justice, climate injustice comes from the plutocrats and the, and the extremes of wealth concentration. That's where it comes from. And unless we attack wealth, we will not address climate justice. Somebody's going to have to lose, and it will be the wealthy. It has to be. Um, they're, not going to, they're not going to be placed in the same position as the poorest. Of course, we, that, that, that's inhumane but clearly they have
2: to pay and clearly they need to lose. You know, we've just spoke about the climate crisis there and the kind of grandest, most micro um, concept that we can have. But what what you've demonstrated and what you've shown to us is the power of the local community. And I want to just take that to the local community can express its power through local elections. Now, you're saying to us there's a huge amount of power in local elections and, and, and local politics why is there so little interest in local power and local elections and we've got a local elections in Scotland I think in, in the springtime but for me you're giving us all the wonderful prospects and, and and all the power is there about taking control of these anchor institutions and you know getting involved in the local politics in the community but that doesn't seem to be what's reflected, especially in the, United, in the United Kingdom, would you agree? And if so, how, what can, how can we do to change that? Because you've shown us that the power is there. How can we achieve that power? What can we do to make that actually happen?
1: 40 years of neoliberalism, how many years went want to put to it, doesn't want strong democracy because democracy threatens their own power. Um, so and the people are pissed off with representative democracy, broadly. You know, local elections, you'll get turnouts of, you know, 30, 40% because they know it doesn't make much difference. Because who actually controls their life in the economy is not the politicians. It's the 40 years of embedded, ingrained, deepened, solidified neoliberalism. So I'm using those words, but people generally say, like, there's no flipping point. What's the point? Nothing never changes anyway because nothing will change because the economy is driven by others a few people, a few men. <laughs> and so we need to, that's why economic democracy is so important. That's why cooperatives and all that is so important. To give people a stake more in the economy, in their lives directly. That's why community parks are so important. That's why the new municipalist movement is so important. The sense that we have an agency, we have a volition. What we do can change things. By working with others can change things. By working with them, we can do something different in the economy. That participative democracy, is the fuel for representative democracy. It's the fuel to, to create a resurgence of a representative democracy. Um, but it's it, it, we're detached from that. So again, it's this bit about eating an elephant one bit at a time. We need to improve economic democracy. We need to give more people a say, and then we will see bigger uh, rep- representative democracy. Once there's that greater participative democracy. And we need to encourage participant democracy, and Scotland does. It's Community Empowerment Act. Yeah, it's new legislation may augment that. We've got a lot to do, but it's but it's there. And also look at the turnout in the independence referendum, massive. Yeah, so we're doing better than others. Um. And so we've got a lot to do. But what I'm saying is we need to look at the epiphanies of possibilities and the hopes that are there and clearly to give people more of a stake in the economy directly will have its democratic returns through the ballot box
2: that leads nicely to my last question earlier you'd said you'd stated that scotland is kind of uh, there's this, there's there's fertile soil there in scotland and you don't feel that in england how does this play into uh, scottish independence and the, the place of scotland currently in the union united kingdom is breaking up right by by the forces of
1: lots of different things the united kingdom is increasingly anachronistic right to the context of our lives now it's not just politics there's other economic things going on and other social social and cultural factors going on here so you have to make a decision whether that anachronism can be brought to made relevant right can it be made relevant And how much effort it would take to make it relevant as a united kingdom and then if you think well i don't think it can i think it would take too much effort to make it relevant then you accept its irrelevance and you move to something that's better and so from an economic point of view at this point in time the more devolution the more local control The more control that we have as a people over the means of production and the fiscal dimensions of that then the better so you know i'm not wanting to put my mask on any particular political but i'm saying i'm i'm kind of saying at this moment in time the crisis we have we cannot leave we need to have more democracy and and create that democracy closer to us and our people and our communities. It could mean, you know, that could mean a great and independent Scotland. It also could mean just a really, really, really strong devolution. I don't mean Devo Max, I mean Devo Max, Max, Max. Proper flipping, proper federalism of a real, you know, of a, of a German kind, sub administrations below the landers, you know. But the general principle here is that, you know, I'm repeating myself, is the United Kingdom. Is the United Kingdom anachronistic? Yes. Can it be made more relevant? It could be. Might take a lot of effort. Perhaps we accept its irrelevance and work towards something that's a lot better, that that devolves power, resources and fiscal uh, volition. To the lowest level, we can
0: Yeah, I think, um, you know, I am, my 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 mast is, is firmly up in the air. I am an independent supporter. But um, what I really understood when I went to that talk in the Blue Drill Hall was just how important subsidiarity is. Um, and that, you know, once we become independent, which I'm confident we will one day, that um, what we then need to think about is, democracy further down the line from there because we are not well served as in, in democratic terms in Scotland and um, both as being part of the union at the moment but also then further down the line in local councils etc they're that they, you know I think this is a lot of the reason why people don't vote as much as they should they just do not feel that involvement there is not enough advocacy in the communities um, there needs to be more 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 champions in the community, standing up for the communities, standing up for what they need. And they need to be very visible as well. So I think um, it's, it, you know, you're, the point that you made right at the beginning about the, yeah, the Agora, so more more people really need to be involved in our democracy. It's so important that people understand that, that it's not a spectator sport. You've really got to be involved. And if you don't get involved, things will be done to you. That you don't like? Well, I think
1: the political act like of joining a volunteering in a community center is a political act. You Absolutely. It's part of demos uh, to be a friends of the local community park uh, that that whole civil society action is politics and I think the great places of the world seek to amplify and support that active citizenship. And it can manifest itself, of course, into like economic activity as well. Community, the community centre becomes a community cafe. The community cafe becomes a community catering company. The community catering company becomes delivering meals to schools. Yeah, uh, these things can grow. That's how economies grow. So I think from those small seeds, we need to support that active citizenship. And I think there's an economic dimension to it as well. Um, And we can learn a lot from rural Scotland around all this. That self-sufficiency that comes in rural Scotland, and particularly the Highlands, I think is really important, where things from a seed of action, other economic and other social activities emerge.
0: Absolutely. I think that we have kept you long enough. So I'd really like to thank you, Neil McEnroy, for joining us on Scotonomics.
2: Pleasure. That was fascinating, Neil. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot.